This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Common Sense with Dan Carlin, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, Moyers and Company, Activism from Best of the Left, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and Radio Dispatch. And in the immortal words inscribed on the front of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, for God's sake, don't panic. I tend to believe that the general public is never well informed and never has been. You have to hit them over the head with a sledgehammer to get their attention. The great journalists of the 1950s like Murrow and Elmer Davis and whatnot were very good at that, reminding them that, listen, you need to be tough, you need to be brave, and you need to be willing to suffer some casualties as the cost of freedom if you want to maintain these rights. If you become too scared, and if you start demanding too much security from the people whose job it is to provide security, they'll give it to you, but it will come at the cost of the things that can only be sustained if you're braver. I found a treatment of this story on a website. The website, by the way, was kind of interesting. I didn't go totally granular on it, uh, so it might be, you know, more, um, extreme than I know, but it looked very interesting to me. And it had the name Liberty in the name. And every time I see the name Liberty, I get a little scared because Liberty's become one of those words that extremists tend to use, which is way too bad because it's a word that the entire country is based upon and that all of us rely on. I hate when some extremists or some activist group, you know, turn a word into something where people hear it and it raises red flags instantly. When the word liberty raises red flags for Americans, we're all in big trouble. This is called Liberty Voice. And when I looked at it, it sounded a lot like me, you know, trying to bring the left and right together, liberals and conservatives. You can check it out yourself and see if I missed something. It's at guardianlv.com. But this is the way you write a story if you want to hit Americans over the head with it in a way that gets their attention. It's fundamentally different from the way this story was treated by all the mainstream media, right? It's much more full of hyperbole, but useful hyperbole. There's a time to scare people about how scared they're becoming and what they're willing to sacrifice because they're so frightened. The piece is entitled, Obama Administration Argues Cell Phone Searches in Court by the writer John Amoruso, published on the Liberty Voice website, April 30th, 2014. Listen to the difference in the tone here and how this becomes a call to action. Quote, In the latest expansion of the national security state, the Obama administration has brought to the Supreme Court the argument that anyone's cell phone is subject to search and seizure without first obtaining search warrants. The Supreme Court case, the story says, Riley versus California, is being decided upon under the context of the increasing government surveillance culture and has added yet another nail in the coffin of individual privacy, end quote. That's the sort of story a guy like Elmer Davis might have said, that it sounds a little over the top, but the current situations justify that. You need to get Americans' attention as to how big of a deal this is because they're going to turn around one day and wonder how we got to where we'll be. Here's what I want you to think about. What do you think your children or your grandchildren's expectation of their freedoms is going to be when they've never lived with the amount of freedom you currently have now? Take it from someone well-versed in this subject. It won't be long before your concept 
of what freedom should be and what rights you should have are woefully out of step with the times because people will not be accustomed to what we have now. And what we have now will look dangerous to them in the same way that when I talk about, you know, freedoms we had in 1979, people look at me today like I don't even understand that there was a 9-11, that I don't understand that there's an al-Qaeda and a terrorist threat and all this, right? I'm a middle-aged kook now because my memory of freedom is of a freedom that was greater and more protected than what we have now. Again, Justice William O. Douglas saying it is better, so the Fourth Amendment teaches us, that the guilty sometimes go free than the citizens be subject to easy arrest. Sometime in the very near future, maybe even right now, there's going to be a, a large group of Americans that think the statement like that is woefully out of step with the times. Are you kidding? That person that you let go free could be Osama bin Laden. Do you really want to risk that? And after all, you know, if you have nothing to hide, what do you care? What's on your phone that you don't want it completely downloaded and saved by authorities just in case? I mean, again, you can see how this attitude, if you're scared enough, begins to multiply into a whole bunch of common sense arguments for why you, you don't need a Fourth Amendment to begin with. Begins to make you wonder why the Founding Fathers even put it in your Bill of Rights. As I've said to you folks before, the Fourth is one of the main amendments that guarantee you don't live in a police state, right? And that you cannot be treated like a criminal without probable cause, and that you cannot be searched in most cases without a judge signing off on it, and without the authorities specifically saying, we want A and we want only A. We can't go through and say, oh, wow, we were searching for A and we found Z, so now we're going to use Z. Does that protect bad guys? You bet it does. Because protecting the bad guys is how you protect yourself. Thomas Paine, back at the time of the revolution, had the great line where he said, quote, An avidity to punish is always dangerous to liberty. It leads men to stretch, to misinterpret, and to misapply even the best of laws. He that would make his own liberty secure must guard even his enemy from oppression, for if he violates his duty, he establishes a precedent that will reach to himself. End quote. In other words, you don't give the bad guy these freedoms, and eventually all these laws intended to go after just the bad guy is going to be used against all of us. Now, the difference between yours truly and a lot of people you will hear argue this stuff is that I don't think it's some cabal or some conspiracy or anything else. I happen to agree with another Supreme Court justice, a contemporary, by the way, of William O. Douglas, Justice Louis D. Brandeis. And he said, quote, the greatest dangers to liberty lurk in insidious encroachment by men of zeal, well-meaning, but without understanding, end quote. These district attorneys out there who are essentially arguing away the Fourth Amendment and who treat it like a criminal protection measure aren't fascists. They're not communists. They don't want us to live in a repressive police state. They just don't seem to understand that that's where their arguments lead. And we don't seem to understand that we've got to be willing to suffer some damage and some casualties in order to maintain these freedoms. Because if you decide that security is more important than these sorts of you know, constitutional protections, then you're going to get your security and you're not going to have your constitutional protections. And your grandchildren may turn around one day and say, how did you even live back in that day where police officers couldn't download everything on your cell phone? My goodness, that would scare me. This is the reason, ladies and gentlemen, 
that many of the founding fathers thought things like the Constitution were at best temporary constructs because eventually we would not be able to maintain that kind of a society and that if we had control over it and if the people we elected and who helped govern things responded to our will, they would eventually shut down these freedoms at our behest. Run, freedom, run. Freedom, run away. My friends, you have to run, 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 run. Freedom, run away. That freedom, son, will shine someday. Till then, you better run, 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 run. Freedom, run away. I'm frightened. Oh, well, you should be. Freedom is scary. It's a blast of cool wind that burns your face to wake you up. Literally? Yes. There's a trickle of sweat, dripping in your ear. Still, you gotta run, 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 freedom, run away. Now, don't you fret, and never fear. To freedom's a one, 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 freedom, run away. Earlier today, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling that for once actually expands American rights when it comes to privacy, specifically in this case, uh, digital privacy. Uh, listen to Chief Justice John Roberts talk about your rights when it comes to your cell phone. Modern cell phones are not just another technological convenience. With all they contain and all that they may reveal, they hold for many Americans the privacies of life. The fact that technology now allows an individual to carry such information in his hand does not make the information any less worthy of the protection for which the founders fought. Our answer to the question of what police must do before searching a cell phone seized incident to an arrest is accordingly simple, get a warrant. And he goes on to say, cell phones today are more like mini computers that also happen to have the capacity to be used as a telephone. Phones can include many distinct types of information, such as addresses, notes, prescriptions, bank statements, videos, that can reveal much more in combination than any one type. The sum of an individual's private life can be reconstructed through a thousand photographs labeled with dates, locations, and descriptions. The same cannot be said of a photograph of or two of loved ones tucked into a wallet. And the comparison he's making there is that it is legal under U.S. federal law for police to search physical objects on your person during a, a potential arrest without a warrant. And now they're drawing a, a distinction between other types of physical objects and cell phones specifically. Now, let me start a sentence with a, in a way that I would not have expected. Let me list all the different ways that Justice Roberts is right. Wow. <laughs> okay. At one point in the decision, he says uh, they can probably find out more about you by searching your cell phone than they can by searching your house. Yep. And that's a great point. It's totally true. Our private information is much more so in our cell phone than it is in our what? Our attic, our basement these days, right? That's where our files are, our pictures are, our our searches for what we watched online, what we saw online, our our emails, contracts emailed to you, what have you. That, that's exactly right. Uh, and the second part that they focused on here is, look, you're allowed to s search the, the, the guy, the, sometimes the car, when you've arrested him because you're worried that he's got a gun, right? Exactly. It's a physical danger to the cops. The cell phone's not a physical danger to you, and certainly doing a Google search or looking through his emails is n in no way relates to a physical danger to you. What you're doing is searching and seizing the guy's property without a proper warrant. So. 
it's about time they regulated on this. And look, give them credit, man. It was nine to nothing. It was unanimous, right? Yeah. It's and they great, did the right thing. Yeah, they did the right thing. It's a great ruling. They even uh, cited uh, sexting and how, you know, if you grab that phone and you start looking through it, it's an invasion of privacy because it could have, you know, really sensitive stuff on there. But, you know, the thing about this that I don't really care that much about is, yeah, okay, so they need a warrant to look through your cell phone. Doesn't matter. Like, the government's looking at everything we're doing anyway. So it, it feels good to know that, hey, a cop needs a warrant before he grabs that cell phone from me. Um, but our privacy is being violated in so many other ways, and it continues to be violated in so many other ways. I mean, we have a guy who's in asylum in Russia, and he doesn't know what's going to happen to him because he leaked that information to us. The government wants to, you know, prosecute him in the worst possible ways. I mean, it's just, the situation is not solved. This is just a tiny little symptom of a bigger problem. Yeah. Now, one of the, the sort of side benefits that I think might come from this that I don't see getting a lot of uh, press attention is, I, I, we've been on the record multiple times saying that we're in favor of citizens videotaping what police are doing. And thanks to cell phones, now everybody has a high-def video camera in their pocket at all times. If the police can simply search your body, take your cell phone and search it, they can easily delete that video footage. And now that they won't be able to do that, they can still physically destroy the phone. And I think in many cases, the police will choose to do that. This makes it a little bit more likely that the malfeasance of the police will be revealed through videos that we've talked about before. Now, one more serious and one more goofy point. Uh, the serious point is President Obama's administration argued against this. <laughs> they were they lost this case. Shocking. All right. Isn't that amazing <laughs> that the Justice Roberts Court, which is a deeply conservative court, it's the same court that just ruled in McCutcheon that basically both incredibly rich individuals and corporations can spend unlimited money in politics. Go buy all the politicians you want. I mean, they are conservative by any stretch of the imagination. They ruled in favor of the Chamber of Commerce more than any court in American history. And they are a little bit more liberal than President Obama. Mm -hmm. At least in this case, and by the way, in a decent number of cases, okay, where President Obama said, his administration said, no, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. I want all the information. And it's almost a form of combat against the American people. You have an advantage in combat if you have an information advantage. So they want to grab all of your information under all circumstances. Partly to what Anna said, and partly this was part of that puzzle. And in this rare case, the Supreme Court said no. Okay, you've gone too far. Which brings me to my goofy point. I think part of the reason that those white male, because no, not about Star Trek this time, uh, white male conservatives who always vote against privacy, in favor of chamber of commerce, in favor of the government, etc., usually, right, in this case went the other way. Because they also have cell phones. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And they also have looked at questionable things on their cell phones. And what are they doing under those robes? Okay. No, no. I'm, but by the way, I'm somewhat serious. Now, there are not all white males, of course. Uh, Clarence Thomas is on the court as well. But they, all those I'm guys. Right. You tell me, Clarence Thomas didn't look at porn on a cell phone. Is that what you're telling me? Given the what Anita Hill history. All right. So they, for that, for once, they could empathize with the American yes. people, and they thought, wait. I've looked at stuff on myself. I don't want the government seeing that. Okay, wait a minute. No, no, this is a bridge too far. Yeah, I think it's more about the empathy thing than anything else. Like, even if they haven't done any of that stuff, they can put themselves in that position and they understand the ramifications of allowing an authority to just grab your phone yeah. without a warrant. So I like that. I like that they can put themselves in that position. I like that it's unanimous. But I think that when it comes to our privacy concerns, it has to go much further than our cell phones. We need to stop having all of our emails and phone calls listened to. Yeah. So and don't you think this is actually true conservative value? 
values, though. I mean, even yeah, so, it is. yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's why I would say liberals and conservatives could come together ideologically to oppose this. But uh, you're saying that the only reason that they're actually being true to their conservative values is because it affects them personally, like Republicans. That's the only they can yeah. never understand a situation until it affects them personally. And this is an example of that. Yeah, look. Uh, very rarely you'll get a principled conservative. From time to time, Tom Coburn, although he drives me nuts in a lot of ways, from time to time, or oftentimes, Ron Paul, sometimes Rand Paul. Okay, but nine out of ten times, what you're going to get is a guy who's a crony capitalist or the Supreme Court that loves crony capitalism. They're not conservative at all. If it's Bush v. Gore, they're like state rights. The state's rights. We don't care about that. We're going to vote for Bush, right? Uh, you know, oh, libertarian principles, conservative principles about free market. Who gives a damn about the free market? Buy all the politicians you want. Fix the market in your favor. So they're gigantic hypocrites. In this case, you're right that it is the theoretical conservative position for the government to get the hell out of our lives, right? But rarely do they ever do it unless they've already watched porn on their own cell phone. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Wow, did you see the story about Google? Uh, Google, this is uh, this was over in BBC Technology News. I, I thought it was interesting that I didn't see any coverage of this in any of the American press. Uh, it was the BBC that reported it. Uh, but it took place in Houston, Texas, according to a uh, local news report. It was it, it reported by the local news. Uh, basically, the, the net net of this story is that, uh, you know, Google reads your email, and this guy was sending... Uh, child porn pictures to somebody, and they they identified them, and they turned him into the local police. Now, you know, there's two words that you can use that basically justify any kind of legislation or draconian police activity, and they are terrorism and child porn. All that said, though, this raises a really interesting question. If Google has decided to participate with law enforcement, if Google has decided to read all of our emails and decide when we've committed a crime and when we have, turn us over to law enforcement, what crimes are they looking for? And where could this go? You know, once again, every you know everybody hates child porn, everybody hates terrorism, so... I'm guessing that even if this was a big story in the United States, like it is over in the UK, even though it happened in Houston in the United States, they uh, this this guy that they um, well here's the story from the BBC. 
Uh, Google has revealed the identity of a user after discovering child abuse imagery in the man's Gmail account in Houston, Texas, according to a local news report. Uh, Google alerted a child protection agency, which notified the police, and the man was arrested. Turns out that the guy was, you know, a, uh, had been previously busted for for sex offenses, uh, offenses of some kind, apparently child porn. So, you know, people look at that and go, eh, you know, <laughs> child porn. Come on, the guy deserves to go to jail, right? But it raises a really interesting question. Google has decided to get in the law enforcement business. There are a number of states in the United States where it is ill, you know, where where uh, having a, a a sexual relationship outside outside of marriage, where infidelity is illegal. Are they looking for people having affairs? I arguably all over the country. Even in those states like Colorado and, and Washington State where buying pot is legal, at the federal level it's illegal. Are they looking for people who are using pot? Are they looking for people who might be conspiring to do things like unfurling a giant pink banner that says war criminal and the next time Dick Cheney is doing a book signing? It's a crime. When I was in um, was it Minneapolis, St. Paul, wherever the uh, Republican National Convention was, it was either there or Denver. I think Denver was a Democratic and Minneapolis was a Republican. Yeah, it was St. Paul. Thank you, Jim. When I was there uh, back, you know, uh, a couple of years ago when the, when the Republicans had their, their nominating convention, the police preemptively arrested a bunch of young people who were planning to show up and protest or perhaps even disrupt the Republican National Convention. The legality of that has been questioned. I think actually uh, one or more of those young people have, have successfully challenged that in court. But, you know, did, did Google play a role in that? And, and of course, it's not just Google. Louise did a search uh, earlier this morning on, on, on these, uh, you know, these policies. And Microsoft, Yahoo, you know, a bunch of these organizations that provide free mail monitor the mail. Now, they say that they're doing it, that they read every single message you send or receive in order to tailor the ad that they're giving to you. After all, it's a free email service. You check the box, yes, I accept the terms and conditions. And it says as part of your free email, we get to read it all. And, and based on what we read... You know, if we see that you're talking a lot about breast cancer, we will send you ads for wigs for chemotherapy. If we see a lot of ad, you know, a lot of conversation about, uh, you know, how much you love bicycling, we'll, you know, we'll send you ads for companies that sell marathon bikes or whatever. That in and of itself is pretty creepy. But now being a law enforcement agency or working with law enforcement. Now, I realize the Fourth Amendment says that the government may not inspect your person, papers, or private effects without a warrant. But it doesn't say a private, for-profit corporation can. I'm, I realize there are some companies that offer completely confidential email, in fact, encrypted email. Apparently, uh, 
uh, Ed Snowden was using one of them, and when it got around that he was using it, their server was out of Norway or something. They they ended up having to shut down. Um, but there are others. But most people are not going to be sufficiently sophisticated to know about that or to find them or to figure out how to do it or, you know, how do you put um, the, the the various encryption programs into your, I mean, how do you do this stuff? People don't know. Is Google going to help the Obama administration arrest whistleblowers? You know, the guy who blew the whistle on the on the banking fraud is, excuse me, on the uh, NSA spine, is uh, in jail, John Kiriakou, on the torture programs. He's in jail. The people who did the tortures yesterday, uh, a couple days ago, the president came out and said, hey, yeah, yeah, we tortured some people, yeah. We're not going to do anything about it, but, you know, we tortured some people. Well, we have done something about it. We, we put the guy who pointed it out in prison. But is Google looking for those kind of crimes? Is Google looking for crimes against the people or against the guy? I mean, where, where does this begin and end? And what are possible solutions? I realize the so-called marketplace marketplace fixes. Well, well, yeah, people will just start offering, you know, encrypted, secure email services where they promise, cross my heart, hope to die, that that they won't inspect your email. Well, a, can you trust that promise? Uh, B, what happens if the company goes out of business? What happens to their files? And C, how can you hold a private corporation accountable? You, you know, outside of a court of law, you basically can't, and in many cases, you can't sue them in, in in court because you can't compel them to give you the information unless you can demonstrate that they committed a crime. Bernie Sanders comes on this program regularly and talks about all the very various different things that the post office should be able to do to add, you know, to earn a little extra money. Post office should be able to. Uh, for example, be a bank for low-income people who can't afford banking. And so instead they're paying these absurd fees to these payday lenders who are serving as bankers for poor people. What if the post office was to offer a secure email service that operated under the same rules as postal mail? If your letter carrier opens your mail and reads it without a warrant, not only do they get fired, they can go to jail. Uh, I want to address, this might surprise some people, okay, but I want to address the recent leaking, hacking, of nude pictures of various female celebrities, including Jennifer Lawrence, including Kate Upton, and some others who I didn't even recognize. So I'll mostly just talk about Jennifer Lawrence and Kate Upton, since I at least recognize who those people are. Over the weekend, someone leaked hundreds of pictures of uh, those two women and others, 
which seem to have been stolen from private storage that I guess what it seems to be is they weren't stolen directly from the, the mobile phones of these women, but rather they were storing their pictures on the cloud and the cloud was hacked. That's the information I have right now. Maybe ultimately that'll end up being different. Uh, there have been a lot of different reactions to what happened. Some kind of equated what took place to rape, saying that these women's sexuality because these were sexual pictures, was invaded. Their sexualities were invaded. And when that happens in the physical world, we have a name for it. It's called rape, right? And that this is basically that in the digital world. Uh, that may be an analogy that is valuable to you. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I, I might put it a little bit differently. What I find very interesting, though, is that if you look online, and I won't mention any website specifically, but if you look online... Uh, at internet communities and the comments on articles about this, you'll see that a lot of the same people who were very, very opposed, men who are very opposed to NSA spying, saying uh, it's an invasion of privacy, it's against the law, this is absolutely not okay, seem to think that, well, listen, some of these women, if you didn't want this to be a possibility, you shouldn't even have taken pictures of yourself naked or in sexually compromising positions or whatever the case may be. And it, it's amazing to me that this seems to be just an obvious double standard because, Lewis, if you were to say to those individuals, hey, you're so worried about the NSA spying on you, if you're worried about them reading your texts, don't send any texts. If you're worried about them listening to your phone calls, don't make any phone calls. That same explanation, that same defense of this hacker, who many of these individuals are saying, eh, you know what, it's the internet, it's a wide open, it's the wild, wild west. The same explanation applied to the NSA would not be okay with them. There is some hypocrisy there. I will say that if, if you look back over the years, it seems that somehow almost everyone who has these nude pics or uh, sexual videos, somehow they get exposed. It, it, it seems to always happen. Oh, well, no, but Louis, Louis, what you're saying is ridiculous. About, of All of the ones yeah. we don't know about obviously right. have not been no, no, exposed. No. A, lot of, uh, a lot of the most, uh, I guess you could say, attractive and popular actresses uh, seem to have these things pop up. Um, and I, I do think that if you're going to take these pictures, you need to be much more uh, careful. And I mean, I don't know what, if they are aware of the technology involved here. Certainly, I would never put mine on any form of cloud storage if they existed, which they don't. <laughs> uh, I, I'll, I'll, I just wanted to put that out there. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, what you're saying, Lewis, is not wrong, right? Which is you should you're playing with fire if you're famous and you're doing this. There's no question about that. Obviously, there's some risk that someone. I mean, what if your phone is stolen, right? I, the, right. There, there are so many different ways in, in which this could happen. I'm just interested in the specific hypocrisy when it comes to the prosecution of this hacker, who, by the way, now appears to be on the run, and whatever that means, that hacker now is reportedly on the run. The double standard which with, so, with which so many of the same individuals who are so critical of NSA spying seem to be not that concerned about the perpetrator and more concerned about the victims here. Very, very interesting, and, and I don't know if everybody will... Um, uh, uh, not everybody subscribes to this view. I don't want to make it seem like that's the case, but it was something I kept seeing come up in comment after comment and looking at user comments on different websites. There's certainly a double standard that applies uh, uh, here 
to, uh, to, to some of the criticisms that are being made of the women here, who again ha are the victims of a crime, in the same way that some are alleging people are the victims of unconstitutional actions by the NSA. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Often, abuses can be hidden. Well, this is true of both the government surveillance and the corporate surveillance, but we all are colluding in that are we not I mean when you open a bank account you sign a document that says they can in effect sell the information we know that we are buying into a system in which our data is being commercialized and commodified and sold to strangers whom we don't know right but I think that there's a difference between exchanging your data for a service right you know you have to give some information to the bank that's part of the transaction. What's disturbing is how many other parties are involved that you don't know about, right? So one of the things that was shocking to me is how many parties are looking at any website that I'm going to. You can see, put software on your machine to see all the little tracking companies that show up. And even in my online grocery shopping, there were six companies watching what I was buying. Could they connect your name to those six purchases? Depends on whether my grocer shares it with them. And once again, we don't always have insight to what is being shared about us. But what we do know is we do know that people are already being charged different prices for things and online. So I did this big survey when I was at the Wall Street Journal of how um, prices are different for people based on the information that retailers can find out about them. So we found that Staples was selling its office supplies for different prices to different people, even if they like were 10 miles away from each other, because they had determined which ones they thought could afford to pay more and which ones were closer, living closer to their competitor and might be able to choose a cheaper product. And so I think we're going to have to think about what is the future of redlining when every single com company that you interact with already knows everything about you and could give you a completely tailored price and you wouldn't have that much invisibility into what other people are paying for the same thing. You describe a system that sounds impossible to opt out of. And yet there came a moment in your own life, a day when you said, I'm going to escape the dragnet, or I'm going to try. Try. To, try try is the operative word, right. yes. So describe what happened. So I tried to get out of as much indiscriminate tracking as I could. So I quit using Google. I gave up on my LinkedIn account. I got a prepaid cell phone in another name. I set up accounts with other names online so that I could mask my identity. I um, op tried to opt out of all these data brokers that had all the information about me. What did you learn about yourself when you tried to opt out? 
what I learned was that I had been accepting all this technology, you know, just taking Gmail at face value and thinking this is the way it has to be, or using Google search and thinking this is the way it has to be. And what I learned was that by spending a little time and effort, I could change the rules of the game. I was able to find another search engine, DuckDuckGo, that was privacy protecting. And at first I found my searches weren't as good, but then when I figured out how to use it, I was able to do it. And I felt very proud of myself because I thought, you know, in the end, as we become more of a technology society and more machine-based, my ability to control the machines is important because otherwise they're going to control me, right? And so I felt very empowered by my ability to switch off of these services. Is it feasible, practicable for everyday people to do what you did? absolutely not. That was actually what I felt at the end of it was I had spent an entire year doing this, and by the end of it, I was marginally successful, but not more than 50% successful, and I had spent an enormous amount of effort. And so by the end, I really felt this was an unfair situation. People can't get out of this. This idea that we were talking about at the beginning, which is the third-party doctrine, which is that you voluntarily give up your privacy when you give your information to third parties. It's not really true because there's not another option. When I tried to find, for instance, an email service that I could pay for that would be privacy-protecting, I couldn't find one, right? So we don't. There's not actually a mar- a real market choice that we can make in many of these situations. You said you did not dislike Google, even though you said goodbye to Google, and you you acknowledged that Google had tried to do right things about transparency, yeah. but still, you cut the bond. Well, yes. I mean, the thing is, Google's operating under these outdated laws that require them to hand over my Gmail in a situation where the post office would not have to hand over my actual mail. So the laws are not stacked in their favor. So they do what they can to protect their users, but they have the most data. They have the greatest data. They had, I think, about 24,000 email conversations that I'd had ever since I opened my account in 2006. They also had stored every search I'd done, which was 26,000 a month. As a journalist, you're looking often for, for research into yeah, your story. Yeah, right. This is my job. I sit there and So they know Google. what you're covering if they wanted to. Yes, right. If anyone wants information about me from the government, that's going to be their first stop. And so it seemed to me that it was just not a good idea to put all of my data in one place, right? I had Google Docs. I had Gmail. I had Google Maps. I had an Android phone. I mean, they, I don't think there was a part of my life that they didn't have on their server somewhere. What? does it mean that most of us cannot escape the dragnet and yet at the same time we're uncomfortable knowing the dragnet's there even if we don't know what it is seducing from us how do we live in such a world I think that is where we need some assurances right if there's going to be a world of pervasive dragnets which is essentially where we live right now in order for it to not end up with a very repressive scared society where we're afraid of how our data will be used against us, we have to have some assurances. And if those assurances are you can see your data, you can get it back, you can take it uh, down if you don't want it there, unless it's something that is, you know, criminals shouldn't be able to remove their criminal record. But, you know, within reason, there could be some deletion rights. Or maybe we could have some laws that said, you know what, if you use data for these things to deny employment or insurance, in these ways, then it's against the law. So if we had those kind of safeguards, we might feel better about the dragnets. But the problem is right now we don't have any of those safeguards. I was impressed, Julia, that 
one of the reasons for your attempt to opt out is because you wanted to protect your sources. It was a terrible situation for journalists, right? Because it's so hard to tell people, trust me with your secrets and important things that the public needs to know, and I promise not to reveal your identity. Because that promise can't be made. In a world of total surveillance, every single call or email or even if you meet in person, your phones will have appeared near each other um, in some location database. There's no way to really say to somebody, there's no way that we can't be linked. Unless you go completely old school and somehow try to do the flower pot thing that they did for Watergate where they moved the flower pot and met yeah, in garages, yeah. maybe that would work in today's world. But it's a very difficult situation, and I think that journalists are the canary in the coal mine, right? We're the first ones to seriously feel the impact of total surveillance, which means we can't protect our sources. But what happens next? What happens next is we don't have very good stories, and we're not good watchdogs for democracy, and that's a very worrisome situation. Are you hopeful that we can come to grips with this new phenomenon, with this state and corporate um, creature? that hovers above us all the time? I am hopeful, and the reason is because I actually really love technology. I want all the benefits. I want my phone. I want. I love the power of the Internet to connect me with people and ideas from around the world. So I am possibly irrationally optimistic that I can keep all of that. I do think if we could minimize the risk and put some legal contours around it, which is maybe that you have some right to see your data, that you have some right to challenge it if it's used against you. Those kind of measures, I think, would provide me the assurances, and I think that's something we could achieve in this country. Before my viewers read your book, what's your advice for them? Change your passwords, okay? Change your passwords. <laughs> the most common password is 123456. There's so much hacking going on out there right now that you're leaving yourself exposed. So to do one thing in your life to protect your privacy, change it to something long, like 30 characters. Pick some words from the dictionary randomly, string them all together, and do that. What a world. I know. It is a ridiculous world that we live in. But this is a marvelous guidebook through it. Dragnet Nation, a quest for privacy, security, and freedom in a world of relentless surveillance. Julia Angwin, thanks for being with me. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, one password to rule them all. Now, just in case the clips haven't done the job of driving home just how important it is to protect your personal information, allow Jose Paglieri at CNN Money to bring you the rest of the way there. From his piece earlier this year, quote, 
Hackers have exposed the personal information of 110 million Americans, roughly half of the nation's adults, in the last 12 months alone. The damage is real. Each record typically includes personal information such as your name, debit or credit card, email address, phone number, birthday, password, security questions, and physical address. It's enough to get hunted down by an abusive ex-spouse. It makes you an easier target for scams. And even if only basic information about you is stolen, that can easily be paired with stolen credit card data empowering imposters. John Oliver recently had some advice on his show last week tonight about this. Turning now, though, to an even more lawless territory than Iraq, the Internet. Uh, there was news this week that may affect a huge number of people on Earth. A report this morning claims a Russian gang is holding a massive list of stolen online records. According to a Milwaukee company called Hold Security, the thieves stole 1.2 billion usernames and passwords. Okay, okay, that is clearly worrying, but on the bright side, that is also the least threatening Russian gang ever. <laughs> uh, give us what we want or Dmitry here will poke your ex-girlfriend on Facebook. <laughs> you will do it. The, the, truly, the truly terrifying part of this story is not just the scale of this theft, it's what the solution might have to be. Probably Assume happened. that every password that you've got is no longer safe and you should go through and change them all. Just don't align that everybody should go and change their password. Yeah, I get that. I, I get that I should definitely change my password. The problem is, I'm not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> because that sounds hard, even though it isn't. Uh, at the very least, it might involve me having to remember answers to security questions from 12 years ago. Um, what was my pet's name in 2002? Was it Kelly Barkson or Hootie the Goldfish? <laughs> you, oh, you know what? It was Christina Aguilizard. But I'm still not doing it. I'm still not doing it. Look, I, I get no one wants to do this. So to help you, we've actually come up with a list of replacement words uh, that nobody, not even a Russian gang, will be able to guess. Perfect passwords such as Alan Alder, New Batman. No, no one is guessing that. It's the perfect password. That sequence of words has never been inside anyone's head. Although now, to be honest, I think he would be a good Batman. I think it's a different way to go with the character. So, so instead, you might want to go with something like Pittsburgh Olympics 2024. That's rock solid. It makes no sense. It even feels weird saying it out loud. Here's a bunch more passwords running along the bottom of your screen right now. Help yourself to any of these. None of them make sense. Uh, there's lobster brownie. John, John Oliver equals Christian Grey. Just words that don't belong together. The point is you're covered. So I know it sounds hard and it would be nice if I could just bring you a segment on a bill in Congress to support or a proposal from a legislator who's made personal security a priority so we wouldn't have to worry about all this stuff. But as an institution, Congress is about as effective as using 123456 as your password on all of your accounts. So today, I'm dishing out advice on basic, simple, and vital tools to help keep your information out of the hands of thieves. Luckily, there is a great and simple place to start the app 1Password or any other similar password manager. As we just heard, if you only do one thing to protect your privacy and information online, it should be to make sure you have strong, unique passwords for every separate account you have. And I know it sounds daunting, but I promise that it is not when you use a password manager.
There are a few of them out there to choose from. I'm only highlighting 1Password because it's the one I personally use and trust. They're not paying to advertise on the show or anything like that, and I'm not even using affiliate links to their products. I realize I could do that, but I'm not just to avoid any and all suspicion. So you can go to the non-affiliate link in the show notes or just type 1Password into your search engine, preferably using DuckDuckGo for the privacy conscious. And you'll get the Agile Bits website where you can download the app to your Mac, PC, Android device, iPhone, and or iPad. Basically, 1Password makes it easy for you to take all that impractical advice that you've been hearing for years. Don't use the same password for everything. Include numbers and capital letters. Change your passwords regularly. And use passwords with you know a whole bunch of characters that include crazy pound signs and exclamation points and everything like that. So how does it work? Well, just... Take a quick listen to their product video. You have hundreds of accounts for websites, apps, and services, and each one gets a password. Most of us take something easy to remember, our dog's name backwards plus the year of our first kiss, and use that for everything. Easy? Sure. Secure? No, not at all. If one account were to get compromised, your whole life could be turned upside down. The smart thing to do would be create a unique password for every account, right? Secure? Sure. Easy? No, not at all. So what do you do? Write them in a notebook? Sticky notes? Make up a song? No, what you do is use a super smart, super simple app called 1Password. With 1Password, all you need is one password. What the app does is collect all your unique passwords into one super safe place and locks them up behind something only you know, your 1Password. And it's integrated right there in your browser. So when it's time to log in, just click the button, enter your 1Password, and you're in. Here's another cool thing. You come to a new site that asks you to make a new account. 1Password will generate a new secure password for you and save it where it needs to go. Next time you want to go to that site, just hit the button. 1Password will do its thing, and you're in. And it's not just for passwords. It's for all sorts of information you need to keep safe. Bank numbers, credit cards, top secret ideas, files, anything. All locked up where no one can get to them but you with your 1Password. And your passwords are with you wherever you are because your 1Password syncs automatically between every computer and device you own. So it's always up to date. No more sticky notes, no more dog names, just you and your 1Password. The even better news is that the basic functionality of 1Password in their mobile apps is now free, so you can download the app to your phone or tablet risk-free and start creating and storing passwords for your most sensitive accounts right now in just a few minutes. I mean, unless you're driving or something. Obviously, your password strength isn't the only thing you should be doing to protect yourself. The Guardian has a great piece I highly recommend called Internet Security, 10 Ways to Keep Your Personal Data Safe from Online Snoopers. It gives options for browsing, cloud services, file storage, and encryption, as well as basic suggestions like avoiding location apps like Foursquare and having your Bluetooth default setting at off. It would be great if there were strong legal protections in place or we lived in a society that respected privacy, but as long as we have you know, identity thieves on the loose and a federal government that seems to have moved on to eh, just grab all the info and we'll sift through it later in case we need it, a la hoarders or something, we're left to protect ourselves for now. 
The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if privacy and security matter to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about 1Password via social media so that others in your network can protect themselves too. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentaries. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. This might sound a little bit contradictory, but so one of the other things that that Snowden said and that, that a lot of other security experts have said is that despite the fact that the U.S. has, in some cases, weakened encryption standards for financial transactions and sort of like the way that common business works over the Internet, he said, and other people have, have said also, encryption works in terms of if you are encrypting your emails, you can't bulk collect encrypted emails. The NSA generally... Uh, Let's say that the NSA wants to get information from your computer, Molly, uh-huh. but you encrypt all your emails, you encrypt all your chats, mm-hmm. your computer is deeply password protected. If mm-hmm. you turn it on, it's just a bunch of numbers and whatever the hell. Mm-hmm. The NSA can get whatever it wants off your computer, uh-huh. probably, but the way that they'll do it is that they'll just, so this is kind of kind of complicated, but I think it's interesting, they'll just, they'll, they'll just find a way to hack your computer as opposed to actually breaking the code that protects your computer. It's actually very difficult to break the the encryption that protects your machine, but if you go to a website and there's malware on it, the NSA can get into your computer through these other sort of ways that don't involve actually cracking the code. Uh-huh. Like, so this is pr- pretty abstract, but the point is that individuals may not be able to protect themselves 100% from the NSA by encryption. Yeah. But if every lawyer, journalist, activist, human rights investigator, and just sort of general person who is friends with any of those people Uh or who donates money to any of those causes, if all of those people started encrypting their information, encrypting emails, just using tools that were the phrases like encrypted out of the box, like just a consumer product that you buy and you don't have to do anything. You just, the minute you turn it on, it's encrypted from your end to the end of the person that you're sending an email to. Uh Then 
NSA bulk collection would be impossible because it would be too expensive to hack every individual computer. But as it is now, information is unencrypted, and so you can just sweep it up, store it, and then if in five years they somebody you know says why well, I, I heard that Molly was involved in that Occupy stuff. I wonder if she went to any rallies after that. Then they can go back. They can figure out who you knew at Occupy. They can figure out if anyone else went to any rallies. And so once the information is just out there in in sort of plain readable form, the NSA can get it incredibly easily, put it away, save it for. A period of years, mm -hmm. but if you and everyone we know has been encrypting our stuff, then they would have to go back and specifically target you, which they probably could do, but they couldn't target every single person mm -hmm. who was involved in Occupy and mm -hmm. then involved in the next thing and then the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of that's the idea behind encryption is not that you can necessarily protect yourself 100%, but that if everybody does it, then it becomes prohibitively expensive mm -hmm. to, to sort of like to, to break the codes that go into securing information. Interesting. Does that all make sense more I, or less? Yeah, I think I, I think I got that. So some amount of Snowden's talk was kind of about encouraging everyone to encrypt. Yeah. Encrypt, encrypt. Yeah, I mean, that was really a significant part of it because, um, you know, with that South by Southwest, it's the, the immediate audience is, is techies, developers, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that both Greenwald and Snowden have said repeatedly is that a lot of the the kind of positive change that's going to come from these NSA stories is not going to come from lawmakers, is not going to come from the courts, is not going to come from Google or Yahoo or Microsoft necessarily. The positive change, if there is significant sea change in terms of protecting people's privacy, it's going to come from developers. It's going to come from people who make the products that we use and people who can make products that, that you, you plug a USB drive into your computer, and like magic, it's this giant castle wall around all your shit. Uh -huh. And that doesn't really exist right now. Uh -huh. And it doesn't exist for a lot of reasons, but part of, like, there's a sort of call to arms at, you know, that Greenwald put out at the, the hacker conference where he was a keynote speaker, that Snowden put out at this South by Southwest thing, is that people need to start developing that. Mm -hmm. People need to figure out ways to make products that are so easy to use that it's as simple as starting your browser. Mm -hmm. And that by starting your browser, you are protecting yourself from bulk collection. Mm -hmm. One of the sort of funny moments of the talk was... Snowden, you know, talking about this stuff, and the ACLU technologist, Christopher, said that if our response to people who want to be anonymous online is to use PGP encryption or to use Tor, then we failed, right? Because if you tell people to use Tor, they just won't. Some people will. Because it's too complicated? Or? Yeah, it just, yeah. it's like, I don't use Tor all the time. I do sometimes, not all the time. I know a lot of people who 
both strongly suspect that they could be under some kind of government surveillance and who don't use Tor, people who suspect that they could be under some sort of, you know, bulk collection, as we sort of all suspect we are, and who don't encrypt all their emails. I certainly don't encrypt all my emails. I don't have and, encryption because I was watching a little baby <laughs> the night you guys had your encryption party. Yeah. And so I think that that's, you know, that's a really key point to hammer home to the, to the techies, to the developers, is that the user experience has to be such that it's a pleasant user experience right. and that it's, in fact, superior to using Chrome, that it's superior right. to using Firefox, superior to using Gmail, or that there's, that there's something that you can wrap Gmail in mm-hmm. to actually make it um, protected. Because people are so, I mean, especially people for whom surveillance is an, kind of abstract and not immediate risk. I don't think I'm doing anything that would warrant surveillance. I think it would be silly of me to operate assuming that surveillance would never have anything to do with me. But I think that plenty of people who are just people who aren't journalists, people who don't have anything to do with activism or anything, but who kind of have a casual relationship with the news may be like totally grossed out by the idea that the NSA is surveilling all their emails, but at the same time is like, well, I'm not going to get rid of Gmail. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's... It's just... It's a huge pain in the ass. Right, right. And it's, you know, all my stuff is there, and uh-huh. all my friends are there. And, yeah, you know. and even, like, am I going to quit Facebook because of an abstract fear of right. being in some databases, whatever the right. hell? People who are who are part of groups that are, that where we know there is surveillance are still like, ah, I'm on Facebook, I'm not going to quit Facebook. You know? y- yeah, I don't know how helpful this, this sort of metaphor is going to be, but I think that... What I've heard some people talk about is that there needs to be some sort of creation of a societal taboo against not encrypting. So that within the next couple of years, there will be products that are incredibly simple to use, as simple as using iTunes or as simple as using, like, com- like the difference between using iTunes and using BitTorrent or uh-huh. something, you know, where virtually everyone who wants to can use iTunes, but if you tell average computer users to like set up BitTorrent, they'll be like, ah, that kind of freaks me out. I right. don't want to do it. Right. So if there's something that's like that level of difference and people just can use it, can click a box, uh, if it's as simple as in the corner of your browser, you, you check a box and then you're using encryption and, and to not check that box is seen as a sort of like, civic failure, yeah. that's, I think, where it has to be. It has to be sort of like voting, where on some level you'd know that your individual vote is not going to be the thing that decides whether it's Obama or Romney. But there's strong pressure to vote. There's an idea that it's your duty. There's an idea that people have, have struggled. And obviously... And for the greater good. Yes, yeah, for the greater good. And to a certain extent, equating privacy with I don't want to equate privacy rights with voting rights exactly, but people have struggled incredibly hard for privacy rights, and it is it clearly is a civil rights issue in terms of who gets surveilled and, right. and who's going to be victimized by state overreach. Right. There's obviously a civil rights component to that. I think if people start to, in the next years, decade, whatever, think of... Uh, of encryption as as a sort of civic duty, I think that that may be the best way to see the, the long term effects of the Snowden revelations, as opposed to saying, "Well, this one government agency now has these five new 
regulations to it. Uh huh. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, and there's also, you know, what Snowden did was create mass awareness of the NSA. And even, I think it's fair to say that there was kind of mass distaste or alarm even when people learning about the NSA. But that hasn't translated to, like, mass boycotting of Gmail or mass mm-hmm. encryption, mass movement in the privacy front. Yeah, and to the extent that there has been movement, it's been, it's been still in a very kind of niche way. Um, thanks for replaying that episode you did the other day. It was a, a really great episode and good things for us to remember. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this whole Islamic State bombing inside Syria and Iraq thing going on. And, and you know, I I think I've pretty much come down on the side of being a non-interventionalist. Um, been listening to what Dan Carlin on his show Common Sense has been saying about the whole idea. And it, it just it frustrates me that a group can behead a couple of people albeit they are Americans, and all of a sudden the the public, based on the polls I hear on NPR and everything, are so out for blood now that we have to do something. And, you know, it reminds me of the, our, our immigration problem, honestly, with what's happening to those poor families down in El Salvador um, and other Central American countries that the, the gangs are taking over and forcing elementary school children to sell drugs and murdering their families. And, and that that is awful, but you don't hear a peep about that atrocity because maybe we don't have videotapes of it happening we're not getting called out by some islamic um british sounding man who calls out our president it's just it's frustrating and i I see us going into yet another war in the middle east and i haven't yet found one good reason why we should do it at all no one has been able to convince me of anything that I've listened to that it's a good idea. And what Dan Carlin was saying about letting the Islamic State actually try to become a state makes a lot of sense. I, I know they're doing atrocious things to people over there, to, to Sunnis and Shiites alike, and Christians and Kurds, and horrible things are happening over there. But they want us, the United States and the West, to go in there and start another war. And I don't think we should give them what they want. Rachel Maddow has been talking about that a lot. We're giving them exactly what they want by us going out there and doing it. And it's just, it's breaking my heart. And I don't know a good way to explain my non-interventionalist stance without sounding immediately when I talk to people about this. It says, oh, well, next thing you know, they're going to come bomb the United States. And I don't have a good argument against that. I don't. But I just know in my heart in my mind that it's a really bad idea for us to get involved over there. So I don't know if you or if anybody else has a good way of not necessarily framing an argument, but explaining the non-interventionalist side in a way that would resonate with people whose knee-jerk reaction is for us to go over there and for America to be the policeman. You know, because I really want to engage people on this and, and try to convince people that, you know, it's not a good idea for us to be doing that. But I think that side is definitely losing the battle. Uh, seeing as how, you know, today we were dropping bombs in Syria. But anyway, man, uh, keep up the good work. Bye. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, to respond to Chris from Colorado Springs, he's touching on sort of a related issue to the thing that I am sick to death of thinking about. The idea... That, that is intricately involved with people's decision to uh, completely reverse their opinion and now decide, yes, we need to go back in, into Iraq. As, uh, as Chris pointed out, you know, people say, well, you know, what if they get stronger and then they come in here, come here and bomb us? That is speaking from a position of fear and it is very related to today's topic as a, as Dan Carlin at the beginning spoke pretty eloquently about uh, we you know we're not having our freedoms taken away by a tyrannical government we're asking our government to take our freedoms away because we're scared and the reason that I'm sick to death of uh, thinking about this issue is because uh, I've had a few interactions. I actually, just a day or two ago, I posted a new bonus show for the members, and I, I basically yelled for about 20 minutes straight about this issue because I've had a couple of interactions with people, uh, you know, one is a listener of the show and one is not, who were making arguments to me that were just steeped in fear. Their, their entire position was based on being too nervous to even figure out what the right thing to do is and, and a total inability to see the big picture. So, you know, whether it's privacy rights or deciding to fly off and drop bombs on foreign countries or, you know, how to approach basically, you know, how should we fight the conservatives? How should we, you know, approach the climate change issue? All of these things, people far, far, far too often operate from either a position of fear or anger or both. And those emotions are basically like the worst possible state you can be in to make a good decision. So I don't know how we get out of this. People are not terribly, you know, connected. They're not terribly aware of the broader world around them, especially through time. They don't have a big, uh, you know, concept of history or foresight. And so this sort of, I sort of take comfort from this, but it's also really depressing. Uh, My brother put it to me this way once that once he realized that humanity as a whole acts more or less like a force of nature rather than a collection of intelligent individuals, the whole world began to make more sense to him. You know, if you if you think of an individual and you're like, right, but like you should be able to reason your way out of this. And that might be true. And it is true in a lot of times. But when you take a group of people or, you know, a country full of people, they basically act like, a, as I said, a force of nature. Like you wouldn't get angry at a tornado for you know, smashing someone's house because it's a tornado, like that it's doing what it does. Well, humans, when you get them all together and see how they act, they do really stupid shit because they don't think that far in advance. They don't have much hindsight. They react out of emotions of fear and anger and that sort of thing. And they just do what they kind of think is right in the immediate 
without thinking too much about it. And so then, you know, you get requests for our privacy rights to be taken away, our country to bomb other people, and so on and so on. On one hand, I agree with my brother. It does make me feel a little bit better to think of it that way. But on the other, it's pretty damn depressing. So sorry to uh, end on, on a down note. But uh, I will leave you with with a question that, you know, if anyone else has suggestions, we, we put out a few suggestions today on how to protect your own privacy, whether it be password managers, uh, different ideas of encryption and that sort of thing. Uh, if you are sort of an expert in that field or are just relatively knowledgeable or know where to get good information on that, uh, then please call in. I'm sure people would be uh, very interested to get more details on that. I'm I'm sort of middling in my understanding all, of all of those sorts of things, and I'm, I'm getting into it, but I don't have, you know, a full, you know, resource of, you know, information to draw from. from. So again, the number to dial if you want to chime in, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame.